At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Being Tex Waldron's son... I was the recipient of many and profound nuggets of wisdom growing up, like this one, sicker dogs than that have got well, or or this one even more, there's nothing like food when you're hungry, Or, or this one which I entered into this week, when you're sick, you don't feel good. And that was certainly true. I found the truth of that again, that profound piece of wisdom this week. (laughs) And I thank you for your prayers for me. I am feeling somewhat better today. Uh, But I've had to stick pretty close to my study and and grind away in there and not go to parties and things. Sorry, McMurdy's and things, things like that. Before we come to the preaching of God's word this morning, let's pray together. By your birth... Your cross, your passion, by your tears of deep compassion, by your mighty intercession, Lord and Savior, help us. Amen. Have you noticed that happy endings don't come as quickly in life as they do in the movies. I love a happy ending as much as anybody. My wife won't even watch a movie that doesn't have a happy ending. But uh, I certainly want it for everyone here with regard to your souls. But this morning, because of the size of the passage I am charged to preach to you, it seems impossible to me to get to the happy ending of our passage. And I think perhaps that is good. Why? Because it is well to remember that we have to spend much time in our lives in darkness and discouragement without the light of the happy ending we want so much. The, the dark times don't last just for 14 hours. They last for 14 days or 14 years. Entering where we have to this morning may be deeply instructive on how we must think and how we must act in those times when we have no happy ending and not even the promise of a happy ending. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We'll read verses 1 to 20, so follow as I read verses 1 to 20. (laughs) 
When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in an Adramidian ship which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish the uh, admonished them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurachwilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor. And in this way, let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, by way of introduction here, I have to do a little housekeeping, at least it seems to me I do, because we come to the, today to the final section, save one, of the book of Acts. By my outline, this is part three and section ten. And so uh, I want you to look at uh, the analysis of Acts 27 and 28. You really have two things here, sections 10 and 11. Journey to Rome, 27, 1 through 28, 14. And then section 11, the conclusion of the whole book, which is the ministry of Paul in Rome, Acts 28, 15 to 31. So that's where we are in the book. That's where we've come to. Uh, then you have the outline of section 10, the uh, journey to Rome. <clears throat> It consists of Acts 27, 1 through 28, 14, as I said. 
And after that, we'll come to the conclusion of the whole book. Luke's account of Paul's journey to Rome has, by my, my reckoning, three subsections, which we may simply entitle Shipwreck, Malta, Rome. Today we will get simply to the first part of the division, which I have called Shipwreck. And then let me give you some sort of analysis of the shipwreck account. Eventually, in the account of the shipwreck, we will look at six Ds. Amazing how that happens. We will look at five of them today, departure, difficulty, dialogue, disaster, and despair. The last one, deliverance, we will consider next week. I warned you, didn't I, that you wouldn't get a happy ending this morning. And then I want to show you a map of the disastrous journey. The account of this sea sea journey and the shipwreck is one of those passages which almost begs for a map. And there it is. Uh, After looking at a number of these maps online, you don't realize perhaps how many maps of shipwreck journey you can find. After looking at a number of them, this one seemed the most best accurate and helpful to me. Uh, Paul and and the company with him on the ship first sailed and then were driven across the Mediterranean Sea. And you see, this this map has the helpful, if you can see them, I I think they're big enough for you to see, at least I can see them on the back there. Uh, You have a numbered system here from 1 to 15. Uh, That's where where the, the shipwreck occurs. And so just follow along here on the map as I try to point out to you uh, what's going on here. First of all, you remember Paul was in Jerusalem. That's number one on this map and escapes with the Roman escort to Caesarea. Then he spends two years in Caesarea and finally leaves from there for Rome. They embark and after a short trip along the coast, then uh, from Caesarea's port, they arrive at Sidon. Famous city there, that's verses 2 and 3. The ship sails under the shelter of Cyprus. That is, they sail close inland. I suppose that means to what is the right side of that island, and they go around the curve of Cyprus there, and they sail close to Cyprus that way in order to avoid the contrary winds that are blowing in that season of the year. Then the ship sails along the coast of Cilicia, that's number five, continues to sail along the coast of Pamphylia, that's number six. The ship arrives at Myra and Lycia, that's number seven, and there they board an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy. Lots of speculation about what that ship was. It was probably one of the the grain ships, you remember, bread and circuses, that's Rome. One of the uh, grain ships that came from Egypt and Africa and fed the mobs of Rome uh, was probably docked there at Myra and Lycia, and the the centurion put Paul and his other charges, the other prisoners, aboard that ship. Eighth, the ship sails along the uh, coast of Asia till it reaches uh, the open sea, uh, the Aegean Sea there, just south of uh, well, it looks like Canidus, but uh, probably the sea is silent. So the ship sails along the coast below Canidus. And then nine, uh, because of the contrary winds, they head south, go almost due south to get around this, onto the southern side of Crete there. 
That's also verse 7. Throughout the journey, the winds coming from the northwest off the lands to the north are making sailing west difficult. They arrive at Fair Havens there on the south side of Crete, uh, near the city of Lassia. That's verse 8. They leave Fair Havens and try for the better port of Phoenix, further west on, on Crete. That's uh, verse 13 and number 11. Then they are blown south off course by the typhoon and under the small island of Cauda. Actually, the Greek says Cauda, not Clauda. And uh, the reason for cloud is that there are a lot of names given to this little triangular island. But I'm going to, I'm going to say Cauda today because that's what the Greek says, not Clauda. And they're, uh, they're barely able to receive the ship's boat and retrieve it and reinforce the ship for the storm as they're just a little bit uh, uh, they're uh, on the south side, the southwest side of this island of Cauda. But the storm continues, and being fearful of being wrecked on the shallows of the Sirtis banks, that's number 13, being, uh, being uh, fearful of being rest, re- uh, wrecked on those moving shallow sandbanks in the, uh, in the southern part of the Mediterranean, even though they were several hundred miles away, they were being driven directly toward them, uh, they put out the sea anchor and let themselves be driven along in the hope of that the sea acre will stop them before they're wrecked on the shallows of Sirtis. And then they are driven westward for many days by the storm. And in verses 18 to 20, we read that they have given up all hope of being saved. And then we'll see next week, we're at number 15 there, that they are wrecked on the small island of Malta a few miles south of Sicily as they discover. So that's, that's, the, that's the sea journey that you see in front of us. I hope that lets you make a little bit more sense of all the detail Luke pours into his account of this journey. Today, then, we come to Roman numeral one under the account of uh, the shipwreck. And under the account of the shipwreck, there seem to be six points, as I've said, and we'll see five of them. Notice first, then, departure. Departure, verses 1 to 6. Notice them again. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion for the Augustan, of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in an Adramidian ship, which is about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration, allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. Now, at this point in Luke's uh, record, there's little indication of the trials and disasters that are going to come as they embark for Rome. Several interesting details are given us about the journey. Luke wants us to know that the centurion to whom Paul is committed is named Julius. Strange Strange but true that in the New Testament, all the centurions we meet seem like pretty good fellows. Uh, that, and he is part of the Augustan cohort. That seems to mean 
uh, a part of a Roman legion particularly de uh, dedicated to the service of the emperor. That is, that is, he's probably part of a military unit composed of about 600 men or one-tenth of a Roman legion. As a centurion, he would have been about one of about six centurions who served under the commanding officer of this cohort. He's going to play an important and honorable part as the story unfolds. The commentators are not clear about the exact nature of this Augustan cohort. It may be that he was part of a special military unit that had for their particular responsibility to bring communications between the Roman emperor and his far-flung military empire, and it may have been natural for him in this capacity to be charged with taking prisoners to Rome. Luke also wants us to know that along with Paul and himself, there is one other member of Paul's team that is allowed to travel with him. It is Aristarchus from Macedonia and a member of the Church of the Thessalonians. He had traveled with Paul on the great gift to Jerusalem as one of his custodians. Now he, along with Luke, sailed with Paul as his helpers, perhaps in order, perhaps uh, in order to gain their company, Paul presented them to Julius as his servants, but, uh, and some speculate that, that, that way, but this is uncertain. Luke, therefore, notes the kindness or benevolence, that's the word he used, of Julius to Paul. Uh, he allows him to go to his friends in Sidon. No doubt this was a special dispensation, and no doubt these friends were Christians, he notes that Paul receives care from these Christians. That makes us wonder if Paul had some particular problem right then. But it could also mean uh, that these Christians simply provided Paul and his servants with supplies for the long journey to Rome. <clears throat> now there is the tiniest indication in this first, first part of uh, Luke's account of what is to come in terms of the bad sailing conditions. He tells us that even during this initial phase of the journey, that the winds were contrary, and this made progress slow going and would create problems in the rest of the journey. And then Luke also notes the transfers from the first ship traversing the local coastal waters to Sidon to the second ship sailing regionally down the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and finally the Alexandrian ship, which was bound on, uh, to Italy on an empire-wide voyage. That is the first thing we see here then. We see departure. Then we see, in the second place, difficulty. In Acts 27, 7 and 8, the difficulties that will accompany the journey begin to be more fully revealed. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Canidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Apparently, the winds coming out of the northwest, as they normally did this time of year, were particularly strong. This made sailing west into their face on a sailing ship very difficult. As a result, after slowly making their way westward to Canidus, they took advantage of the prevailing winds and turned south toward Crete. Sailing through the Cape of Salmone, they took shelter under the island of Crete, 
from the winds at a harbor called Fair Havens near the Cretan city of Lassia. And the third point is then dialogue. Verses 9 to 13 reveal an important discussion that took place while they were sheltering at the Fair Havens. Paul is somewhat of an experienced traveler, and he begins to warn them, saying, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. He knew about the sailing conditions in the Mediterranean. He knew that they were already getting to that time of year that made them dangerous, and close to the time of years when no one sailed at all through the winter months. And so he says, I perceive loss of cargo ship and also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering. The majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. So, as I said, Paul was an experienced traveler. He knew uh, the lay of the land, or the lay of the sea, rather, and he foresaw a danger to the cargo ship and their lives if they went further. The centurion's views would be significant in this decision, But he would be necessarily led by the counsel of the experienced seaman. He is won by the arguments of the pilot and the captain. They thought Phoenix would be a much better place to winter and might be reached with little danger. And thus a majority decided to try for Phoenix. I think that means the pilot, the captain, and the centurion on the one side against Paul on the other. There was a three-to-one vote. Uh, But... This bad decision seemed confirmed by providence. When a mild south wind sprang up, it promised an easy sail down the coast to the harbor of Phoenix. There are a number of practical truths displayed in these events that I would have you notice before we go on. First, we must distinguish between the human perceptions of the apostle and his divine predictions. What we have here is not prophecy. The fact of the matter is that if we call it prophecy, it was false prophecy because it was not at the expense of their lives. What we have here is rather simply a discerning human perception. Now, discerning human perceptions are to be given attention, especially from experienced people, In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. Please seek counsel before you make important decisions and seek them from experienced people. But uh, nonetheless, that counsel comes not often with commands of Scripture, but simply with the applications of commands by discerning human perception. I think that's what you have here. It is like his human perception that he would never see the Ephesian elders again. Well, he did. It is like the human perceptions of the disciples who warned him that he should not go to Jerusalem, but he did. So here Paul, from the perspective of human discernment, foresees a great loss of life, which, however, by God's merciful kindness, never takes place. We must distinguish discerning human perceptions 
from unchangeable divine predictions, and they are two different things. We also learn that the majority is not always right. The majority decided to sail on. But the majority is not always right. Paul was outvoted in this council, but he was still right. I hope the American people have enough sense left in them to punish at the polls the evildoers that have power over us in less than a month. I do, and I pray for it. But what the majority decides will not change my view of what is right and what is wrong. Here is the dictate of the word of God. Exodus 23, 2 reads, You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, even if they don't do what I think they should do and ought to do and need to do. That won't make them right. The multitude does not determine what's right. Majority rule does not determine what's right. What's right is determined by the word of God. Young people, you must not give in to peer pressure. You may right now being solicited by all your friends, as you would say to mom and dad, to do something that you have been taught is wrong, something you know is displeasing to God. Do not follow a multitude to do evil. Rear up on your hind legs and say no. We also learn that we cannot judge the wisdom of a course of action merely by favorable indications of providence. Luke notes... Right after they made the decision, isn't it something? A gentle south wind blows up, and it seems like, well, here's God's honoring our decision. We have this providential indication that we're right. Easily could the majority have said, that proves it. We're doing the right thing. The wind is favorable. Such is the danger of guiding our lives by providential circumstances rather than the clear principles of the word of God. Gentle south winds, favorable to your decision, do not mean that it is right. Beware such gentle south. We also learn the wisdom of the conies, as the old King James Version calls them. Remember the conies? Well, <clears throat> conies is probably not a good translation, but this King James translation of it, Proverbs thirty twenty six. The Shephanim, what the King James calls conies, are not mighty people. Yet they make their houses in the rocks. Shephanim literally means, in Hebrew, a hider, because they made their home in the rocks. They, hidden, they hid in the rocks 
from their big, dangerous enemies. The ship was safe in Fair Havens. Oh, it wouldn't be comfortable. And it was open to the sea somewhat, but it wouldn't be wrecked. Paul warned them to stay there because there was danger on the great seas for their little ship. They needed to exercise the great wisdom for small people of the Shephanim. But the majority thought it was only a few miles along the coast and so little danger. But the majority were forgetting that they were not a mighty people compared to the awesome majesty of the stormy seas. It was their wisdom, the wisdom of the Conies, the wisdom of the Shephanim, the wisdom of caution to hide themselves from the danger that was coming. And thus the book of Proverbs elsewhere warns using the very verb that's translated coney or shephanim, a, ver- a prudent man sees the evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. The wisdom of the shephanim in one word is caution. And I fear... Some of you are not manifesting the wisdom of the Shephanim. say, so what do you know that I don't know? Nothing. I just know that it happens all the time. Some of you are not manifesting the wisdom of the Shephanim. Some of you are not manifesting it in terms of your souls and your spiritual condition. You have not hidden yourself in the rock of Christ, the rock of ages, cleft for me, as the hymn writer calls it. You have not hidden yourself in the rock of Christ and found safety from the spiritual danger which the world, the flesh, and the devil pose to your ever-existing soul. You go on walking in the, the stormy seas of this great world in your littleness and in your naivete and in your lack of caution, all that you would stop, all that you would realize you're going to pay a price, all that you would seek refuge for your soul in the rock that is Christ. But that brings us to our fourth D. Disaster. Disaster. And the disaster predicted by Paul came. It came despite their incaution. It came in spite of that gentle south wind. Look at, again at verses 14 to 17. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurokwilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Kauda. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship 
And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The gentle south wind (laughs) soon turned into a violent northeaster. Luke uses the word from from which we get the word typhoon and which may also be translated hurricane. It is translated violent wind by the New American Standard. Apparently, it was a common enough occurrence on the Mediterranean Sea that it had its own name. Its name was Eurokvilo. This referred to a northeast wind. As a nautical term, says one dictionary, northeaster, a strong stormy wind blowing from the northeast. Exactly what Paul had feared, exactly what Paul had warned them against, exactly what Paul had said and predicted in his human discernment, exactly that came upon them. For some reason, when this happened, they had the ship's boat or skiff out, uh, but a little relief from the storm was provided by the triangular island of Cauda, so the winds coming down from the northeast They sail around the southwest side of this triangular island. They have a little relief from the storm there. And uh, they are able to bring in the boat and to undergird the ship with supporting cables to reinforce it against the battering of the storm. It's interesting what you learn. You know what they call this uh, wrapping a ship in cables? Anybody, Anybody think they know the name of that? It's called frapping. So say the sailors that I was reading. Anyway, it's called frapping. They wrapped the ships in cable, the ship in cables to make sure that it didn't begin to split apart in the battering of the storm. And they put down the sea anchor because another danger when they got all that done occurs to them, and that was Sirtis. Um, it's interesting that apparently you've, you've, heard the, you've heard many of you the idea of Scylla and Charybdis, the great two dangers. Well, Sirtis was another word that was common in the Mediterranean area for great danger. Sirtis, because of the many ships that had founded there on the shifting sandbank banks on the north, uh, just north of Africa. Uh, the dictionary tells us that this is the name of two shallow gulfs along the northern African coast, full of shifting sandbanks called Greater and Lesser Sirtis, Acts 17 refers to the former near Cyrenaica. In a hope to evade the disaster of being up on these shifting sandbank shallows, they let down the sea anchor, hoping that it would stop them before the ship was wrecked in the shallows of Sirtis. It was a long way away, but that, that wind was driving them at a mighty speed uh, <clears throat> towards Africa, and so they also had to try to defend themselves against this danger. Thus, disaster after disaster had come upon them and kept coming day after day. And the result was our fifth D. Our fifth D is despair. Verses 18 to 20. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. 
with their own hands. So you can see them tossing the Egyptian wheat out off the side, uh, lined up in a row, and the battering wind and rain and tossing the uh, the wheat overboard, tossing the ship's tackle overboard just to lighten the ship out of fear of it being it foundering and being uh, being sub- submerged. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. As the storm went on and on, desperation set in. They jettisoned part of the cargo and ship's tackle further to lighten the ship. Still no relief was in sight for day after dark and rainy day, night after dark and rainy night. All hope was gradually being abandoned, Luke tells us. Dark desperation gave way to deepening despair Things seemed hopeless, and then something else happened, and everything else seemed even more hopeless. And that is where our time constraints force me to leave off today. I know, I know, it's a terrible place to stop, isn't it? <clears throat> But there are lessons, I think, to be learned from stopping here and considering a little of what is before our eyes. Do you see the ship's company huddled and hopeless as their ship is tossed on the gigantic waves across the seas? Perhaps if you've never sailed on giant seas, you don't know anything about this. My wife's family tells the story of being on a freighter crossing the Pacific Ocean and being on terrible uh, waves like this, it almost sank their freighter. And the storm had been going on for days and days and showed no sign of stopping. You see the pilot, captain, and centurion full of fear? And do you see them full of regret for the folly of their decision which had doomed them and every soul on board? And do you see Paul? No, I, I don't think he was as despairing as those around him, but he was a man, and must he not have felt himself full of confusion? He wasn't some sort of superman, uh, invulnerable to the, the emotions of the human condition, to the darkness and despair and hopelessness of their situation. Must he not have been full of confusion? Did not this seem a frustration of his goal and of God's promise that he would get to Rome? Did he have to pray? I believe, Lord, I believe, increase my faith. I believe, help my unbelief. Do you see perhaps fearful, you see him perhaps fearful that even if somehow God's promise Uh, brings him safely through. If somehow he survives by God's promise, Luke and Aristarchus, what of them? Will they be lost at sea? Do you see him full of sorrow at the souls who will be lost forever if they die under the rage of the storm because they had no such promise as he had from God? And yet... 
And yet, as we shall learn next week, not one of these fears in God's good providence will come to pass. All will be safely brought to shore. But they did not know that yet. God had not yet spoken. God had not yet appeared to Paul as he was about to do. And they were being driven in darkness and despair and discouragement across the sea with no promise of deliverance. God had not yet come and God had not yet spoken. And yet, as we shall learn, of course, not one of these fears will come to pass, as I said. All will be safely brought to shore. But before that, they did not know that. What lessons can we learn from these things as we watch these huddled and discouraged and despairing people on that boat? Well, the first thing we learn is that we must never give way to panic and fear in the face of the darkest hours of our life. Dark hours will come. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And darkness will come. And in that darkness, even if we have not seen even the glimpse or the word of deliverance yet, in that darkness, we learn that we must never give way to panic and fear as God's people. In the face of the darkest hours of our life, we must believe God, give glory to God, be strong in faith. Such panic and fear, oh, don't give way to it. Don't give way to it because it will drive you to do foolish and disastrous things. Perhaps you are in a dark, dark time in your life and it is making you desperate. So desperate that you could wish yourself dead. So desperate that you are beginning to cast any a commitment to God and his word aside. This dark time is making you desperate. Such desperation will make you ignore the word of God and its guidance. It will make you do disastrous and foolish things. Rather than such panic and folly, be strong in faith, giving glory to God. Remember, if all is darkness around you, it is not dark in the eternal sun above the clouds. God is still on the throne. Better, remember that the Lamb is still on the throne. And though he has not spoken, and no, no word of deliverance has come, Yet he is on the throne. And the darkness does not mean that he does not reign and reign for your good, dear child of God. The storm clouds that darken the earth do not darken the councils and the throne of God. But there's a second thing we learn. And I've implied it already. But we learn that we can trust God even before he steps in. God was going to step in. But we can trust God even before he does. God was going to step in. God was going to speak. God was going to give a promise of deliverance. 
But where we have left our poor travelers in darkness and in night and in desperation, there God has not yet spoken. He has not yet intervened even with a word of promise. And here is the lesson, dear people. Before he spoke into that awful situation in which Paul found himself, Paul still had reason to trust God. Light would begin to shine when God spoke to Paul in that terrible storm. Light would begin to shine when he announced what God had promised to those on board the ship, every last one of the 276 of them. But before that, and where they sat in that rain and darkness and windswept ship, there was even there then reason to hope in God. Isaiah 50.10 tells us, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Where we have left off in the dark night of our text, there was in the darkness still hope even for those who walked in darkness and had no light. Some of you may be saying or thinking that you walk in darkness. You don't see the way out of your troubles. God has not yet intervened even to give you a glimmer of his good plan for you. But even where you sit, even here in darkness, you may trust in his name. Before the light shines in the darkness, even then, before the light shines, you may trust God. But I have to tell you on one condition. Because the text says, who is among you that fears the Lord? We learn that you can trust God only if you fear God. That's the way Isaiah 50.10 begins. Who is among you that fears the Lord? He doesn't say everybody's going to be all right, everything's going to be all right without the least scintilla of a reason for saying it. No, it's going to be all right, he says. Even in the darkness where there's no light, it's going to be all right because you fear the Lord. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus had the right to trust God on that darkest of all nights in that ship. They feared the Lord, but the centurion, the pilot, and the captain, and the other 270 of them had no such right in as far as we know. And the reason is what? They did not fear God. And so the great question, the question I can't avoid putting to every person here. The question I must ask you is this, do you fear God? Everything depends on that. For some of you, I have to say that your life does not show that you do. So you have nothing to trust when life grows dark and fearful, when the dark days go on and on and on. And my friend, it will grow dark and fearful. No matter how nice it looks right now, no matter how happy you were when you came to church this morning, evil will come. 
Ask anybody with a little experience around here. Ask your pastors. Evil will come. Death will come. Sorrow will come so black that you cannot look up. And what will you do then? In that deep darkness, what will you do without God and without hope in the world? So with all the pity and kindness and compassion that I have, I say to you, fear God and fearing God, turn from your sins and embrace the Savior of sinners. Now some of you aren't listening to me right now, but I hope you're going to remember what I've said, because someday you're going to need to remember it. Someday the dark days will come. Someday there's going to come a day when there is no hope. And you have no hope. And in that day, I hope, you will remember what I said today and take refuge in the one who can deliver from even the darkest night of disaster. A night as dark as those souls knew on that ship and a night as dark as you will come to know in your life. May God help you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we can trust you even when we walk in darkness and have no light. And we pray for those who are here this morning who give no indication, sign, and that they fear God, and so they have no hope, and they're without God in the world. We pray for them. Turn their hearts. Get them off the dime. Help them to do something about their never-dying souls, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.